hello and welcome to episode number 86 of Virtual Team Dynamics, the All Fire podcast. My name is Francis Norman. On today's podcast, I have an interview with Betsy Clark of Software Metrics. In the interview, we talked about a recent book she was both an editor and contributor to called, called Integrating Program Management and Systems Engineering, which was jointly published by PMI and Incorsi. So this is part one of the interview, and in this part we also discussed a specific project uh, case study that Betsy undertook, which was which is part of the book, and that was looking at the development of the FA18EF Super Hornet. It was a fascinating interview, and I hope you enjoy it. If you did enjoy it, or if you do enjoy it, then please do check us out at www.allfire.com.au. And of course, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast feed on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from um, and to keep up to date with future episodes. So here's the, pod- here's the interview. So I'm here today with Betsy Clark from Software Metrics. Good afternoon, Betsy. How are you? Oh, good morning. Uh, I'm sorry. Good afternoon, Francis. I'm all confused. I just came over to Australia about a week ago, so the time zones are uh, can be confusing. I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, very good. Thank you very much. Yes. So, um, so yeah, Betsy, we we met briefly at an event in Perth oh, a couple of months ago. Now, I think was that the last time you were in Perth? It was, yes. And as I mentioned to the audience there, I do love Perth. It's my favorite city in Australia and probably rivals San Francisco for my favorite city in the world. It is so beautiful. Oh, we love it here. So I'll, I'll pass that little bit on to the Perth Tourism Authorities when, uh, once, okay. once we edit all of this. So, um, so, yeah, could you just tell me a little bit about sort of who you are and um, what it is you get up to? Uh, Yeah, so um, I live in Virginia, Northern Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., and I started uh, Software Metrics in 1983. Um, My background by training, I have a Ph.D. in cognitive psychology, which is a branch of experimental psychology, so I started... Um, I started doing experiments with rats as an undergraduate, uh, and then in graduate school did experiments with uh, college freshmen who had to volunteer. They were taking the psychology introductory class, um, looking at how people learn and remember and problem solve. And during that period, uh, I took a few programming classes. Now, this was back in the day of, days of the punch cards and uh, computers were, were pretty new, but I could see this was the wave of the future. And I heard about a group um, at, at, in, at General Electric in Arlington, Virginia, that were doing experiments on with computer programmers to look at tools and techniques and, and how that related to things like comprehending programs and, and debugging programs, et cetera. So I, I found out about them and ended up um, being hired by them um, and worked there for four years. Um, really, really did enjoy it a lot. Um, and then um, in, let's see, 19, I left in 1982 and started my own company. I 
moved then into the area of software measurement and software cost estimating and schedule forecasting. Um, and, and so that, that's, what, that's what we as a company do is to help um, organizations implement measurement programs. Um, my, my husband, Brad Clark, um, has been involved in developing Kokomo 2, and now there's a Kokomo 3 coming along. Um, that's out of the University of Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he does a lot of cost estimation as well. So mm-hmm. the areas of data collection, cost estimation, and then um, more recently, I have been working with the Australian Department of Defense, reviewing a lot of their uh, defense programs, uh, looking for, we, I developed a framework with two um, Australian colleagues, um, Adrian Pittman, who works for Defense, and Angela Tuffley from Red Bay Consulting, um, a framework that we call SCRAM for Schedule Compliance Risk Assessment Methodology. And mm-hmm. SCRAM has a very simple framework, a, a framework to help you identify root causes of schedule slippage as opposed to symptoms. So schedule slippage is a symptom of other things going on that may start in requirements or with stakeholders or all kinds of things. So um, that model we call RCAS, uh, root cause analysis of schedule slippage. We have that. And then with SCRAM, we also forecast um, future milestones. And we have two methods. We, we use a parametric model for that. And we also use uh, Monte Carlo with three-point schedule estimates for the schedule experts out there. And that's worked very well. We've now, done, we've now reviewed uh, 32 different programs, including six different reviews on the F-35. The Australians are buying that aircraft. Um, and so that's, a lot, that's why I've been coming over a lot for the last few years is to review those programs and give, give training in SCRAM. Uh, we both have training for people who want to be SCRAM reviewers or assessors who want to do program reviews. And we also train the project people uh, within defense and also contractors who just want to learn about it and learn how to schedule, how to uh, manage schedule risks. So um, <clears throat> that's what I'm here for now is to do some training. Wow. You, so you, okay. your company must have been one of the first to go into that space of, um, of sort of computerized project management and project assessment tools, was it? I think it was very. It was one of the very first in software measurement. Mm. Um, so we were able to get the name Software Metrics. Um, yeah. And that was back in those days, people tended to approach measurement as what can I measure, what's available to measure, rather than thinking about what is it I want to know. Um, One of the things that I have done in my career is work with practical um, software and systems measurement, PSM, uh, which is very much you start with what are the issues, what are the things you're concerned about um, on on a project or a program. Uh, And then the measures are derived from that. And and PSM has a very nice framework for helping you define those measures, uh, present them, and and understand what decisions can be made from them. So that was one of the things I got involved with in starting in 1994 and continue to this day. Mm. Well, yeah, I'm just just imagining how hard it would be now to get a domain name like Software Metrics. It's... um, yeah, it really it really does show how how early you were getting into that space to just to just to get access to a name like that, let alone anything yeah. else. That's uh, yeah, that's amazing. 
Yeah. So you get out to oh, Australia. It's been, yeah. it's been a really, yeah, it's been a really fun career. And the other things I've done, and I'll just mention real mm. quickly, is uh, I've, I've done four different studies now on software sustainment, software maintenance. Um, I've done them for different organizations. Uh, and I also was involved in the development of a model called COCOTS, which is one of the Kokomo family of cost models. And COCOTS is... Um, focus specifically on COTS intensive systems. So systems that are built using a lot of commercial off-the-shelf products. Mm. So it's, I've sort of dabbled in a number of things, but they're all pretty much related to, to measurement yep. in some way. Yep. And do you still find that you go back to your psychology, what psychology was it that you, that you were saying? Yeah. Stand, do you find you go back to a lot of that as well with, uh, with what you're doing? Um, I think... How I go back to it is ultimately everything comes down to people. It really does. I think that, um, in fact, I'm going to talk today, I want to talk about a, a successful program. And what you really see is leadership and culture. We're, we're so important on that. So it, I think in that sense, always as a people. Um, but other than that, where my background really helped me was in statistics and um, just thinking about how to approach a problem uh, in order to answer it and how to use measures to do that. Yeah, and, that, and that's, the, that's that formal academic training, isn't it, that, that really builds that, that level of, of inquiry and, um, and rigor into what you do. Yeah, and I think, but I think I, I, I love the practical. I love working with real projects and programs. There are so many good people out in the world, smart people doing fantastic things, and you never hear about them because they don't have time to present at conferences or write papers. And so um, I just love being able to interact with them, and, 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 and I always, always learn from every program review I do. That's great. That's great. So, so you get out to Australia pretty frequently. Are there other, are there other parts of the world that you get to visit through all of this as well? Uh, the only other place I've spent a lot of time is Sweden, and that was back in the 1980s. Um, there was a period of about two years that I went over for two weeks every six weeks. Wow. So I spent a lot of time over there uh, working with one company to implement a measurement program, and I, I, I very much enjoyed that. Mm. Um, but I will say um, Australia is – it's hard to beat Australia. <laughs> It's, I, I wish sometimes it wasn't such a long plane ride, but it's a wonderful com com country, and I, I just love the Australians. I feel that culturally, I've, you know, their sense of humor is similar, I think, to the American sense of humor, um, and I've always felt at home here. That's great to hear. Well, you could always yeah. stay here and just commute <laughs> back to the U.S. instead. I've been tempted. Yeah, yes, yes. Oh, that's brilliant. So thank, thanks a lot for that. So... Um, as I said, uh, maybe mentioned right at the start there, you and I first met when you were talking about this wonderful book that came out from um, from PMI and Incorsi, um, integrating project manager, sorry, integrating program management and systems engineering. Um, so you've got a couple of case studies that you that you put into this. Um, would you like to talk about one or both of them? And um, yeah, yeah, let's see how it goes with the time. Yeah. Sure. Um, and I'm, I was so happy to see this book come out. Um, and I will, anybody listening, I don't make any money from this book, but I will say it's a very, very, and I'll say it's a very well-written book. Um, when you think about it, successful 
successful projects, successful programs, do just a really good job of integrating the program management and all of the engineering disciplines. And um, there's just so many examples and case studies in the book of, of different programs that have done that and how they did it. So there's just a lot of uh, the, the research is discussed, and then there's just a lot of practical examples. So let's start first with um, let's start with one um, that I first actually wrote up in the late 1990s, and then I'll see if my voice holds up. We can talk about the second, which is an Australian project. Excellent. Okay? Yes, that's great. I have the book here, so I, I can I can I can read along while you're while you're talking about it. Okay, that sounds good. All right. So the first one is the U.S. Navy's uh, F-18 Super Hornet. And um, the background to this is in, in 1998, I was approached by, um, at the time it was a person whose title was the, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Systems Engineering. And uh, he was interested in having a case study written up of a successful program. And so I thought this was just a wonderful opportunity, and I asked around um, everybody I knew um, in, in in defense of what would be a good a good program to uh, to use. And the program that kept coming back was the Super Hornet. Um, it was uh, very unusual. It's one of the few, I think, one of the few programs that actually delivered uh, within schedule, within cost, and Something that's very important for a fighter aircraft is weight, especially something that has to land on a carrier. Oh, yeah. And so that plane was actually under underweight, under its required weight. So those were just fantastic achievements. And the best part of that story is that the Navy was in a terrible place when they first started the Super Hornet. Um, and they really learned from, they had a, a very uh, well-publicized acquisition disaster, an aircraft that was the A-12, which actually got canceled. Um, and so it, they, they had to have the Super Horn at work. They really needed it, and they just couldn't afford another cancellation. So mm -hmm. they really learned from that. The other thing I'll add is I was just, I'm so happy to see this program get the recognition that it, it deserves. So I'm, I'm just so happy it's in the book because I think the Navy people did such a good job. And there's a lot of lessons, even though it was written almost 20 years ago, there's so many lessons that I, that still need to be learned that a lot of programs don't do. So, um, I hope people do have a chance to, to read it. Um, and let me, um, so one thing I'll just give a little background, uh, to the super hornet, what it is, is it's, um, it's, uh, it's, its official designation is F-A for fighter-slash-attack, which means it has a dual role. It, it both does air-to-air, -air, like a fighter would, uh, combat, and then air-to-ground, like an attack aircraft would. Mm -hmm. And then it is the E-slash-F model. So E is a single-seat version. F is a dual seat that you could use for training. Um, so it's the F-A-18EF Super Hornet is the formal name. We'll just call it the Super Hornet or the F-18 for yep. the purpose of this. Um, the prime contractor uh, was McDonnell Douglas Corporation. They're now part of Boeing. Um, and they, Northrop Grumman was one of the major subcontractors. 
and General Electric built the engines, the propulsion system. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, the Navy really did have to get their act together following the cancellation of the A-12. And one of the things, the person who um, I interviewed when I was doing the case study is um, at the time he was, um, well, when he was, he was the program manager as a captain and is now an Admiral Dyer, retired. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing he said when I was reviewing him, when I was interviewing him was that with the A-12 program, there was the perception that everything was fine one day and then suddenly it was a disaster. Oh, yes. And Clearly it wasn't, but the right information wasn't getting to the right people. And nobody likes to be surprised by bad news all of a sudden when they're told everything's okay, especially the U.S. Congress. Um, And, uh, yeah, so that that program was canceled by the Secretary of Defense. The Navy's reputation for um, managing an acquisition was at a low point. And meanwhile, their aircraft were getting older, and they really needed they needed a new aircraft. They needed the Super Hornet, so they had to get it right. So what they did is um, they put together a team and they went around they went around and just studied different organizations, government and industry, commercial, um, and looked at successful ones and how they did business. And one of the things they found was companies that were successful, made effective use of integrated product teams. That is teams that really integrate different functional disciplines and are focused on a particular part of the product. They're very product focused. And so that's one of the innovations that they implemented on the Super Hornet. And what what, um, Admiral Dyer said uh, when I had interviewed him was at the time, in, the, in, in that part of the Navy, they had very weak program management and very strong functional stovepipes. And so the, the, the program manager would basically be given people, but it was the functional stovepipes, it was th- that management that wrote their performance appraisals, et cetera, and the program manager was really left hurting cats, you know. Hmm. Um, and then the other thing was if there were disagreements among different functional organizations they would they that weren't settled, they would be taken up to the highest level of the organization. That was very inefficient. And then the other thing was that the groups really weren't working together. So an example was if there was a request, what we'd call a request for a proposal, you'd call it a request for tender, yep. you know, yep. where the government's coming out and wants contractors to bid on it. Um, that would start with there would be an operational concept for, for the, the whatever system it was. It would be produced by the operational side of the Navy, the, 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 the soldiers, and then It would then go to engineering for the requirements to be written. Um, Then it would go to logistics to identify, well, how is this going to be sustained throughout its life cycle? Then it would go to contracting for contracting language to be written, then to finance, then to legal. And what would happen each time it moved along, they would find that some decision that had been made earlier couldn't be implemented. The, the next functional group would say, no, you can't do that. Yep. It would be sent back for a lot of rework. Well, that was very time-consuming and inefficient. So um, they decided, you know, they're going to change that. So 
the other the other thing is the twelve the the, the other thing is trade offs among the disciplines weren't being made, and so when they first started with this aircraft and got stakeholders together, everybody, every group wanted to maximize whatever it was that it was their area. They wanted the best of everything. And the result was a, was a, was, was just a system that was going to be over cost. Um, and the program manager at that time, his comment was, we don't have a program, we have a mess. And so what they <laughs> I've did been on a few of those projects. Yeah. Yeah. And so, the first thing they decided to do is we really got to get our act together about making the trade-offs and knowing what it is we're building. Um, and um, so they got stakeholders together for a meeting. This was in 1991. They called it the 12 days of August. And they worked through two weeks and a weekend. And they just decided nobody's leaving the room till we have all this hammered out. And so the different functional groups would, they started with a few major requirements they really had to have. Um, that it had to be able to carry more. It had to have more range. There was a requirement from Congress that it could not cost more than 25% of what the previous, the CD model cost. So they had all these constraints, and they worked within the requirements to make those trade-offs, and they had those. One of the things they they, they decided, for example, was they would be able to save money um, by using most of the avionics systems from the previous aircraft, including the software. Now, that's a huge de-risker right there. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Avoid, um, avoiding and, that new yeah. technology is a huge thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And so they, they ended up with, it was a different plane, but it was really an evolution from the previous model. Hmm. And they had all that hammered out from the beginning with a plan that, you know, it was requirements that were understood, trade-offs were made, um, and it was really a, a program that could be executed. It wasn't, you know, just some pipe dream. Uh, so they did that. That was one thing they did right from the beginning. Um, and then I also mentioned the move away from the functional stovepipes to the interdisciplinary and in, interdisciplinary integrated product teams. Um, and so um, Joe Dyer was was uh, was was the program manager, as I said, and. The first thing he did was to collate his engineers with the program manager, um, and, and this was being done out of Arlington, Virginia, and he said there was actually a fair amount of resistance from, um, from the engineering management. Uh, the head of engineering said, you're going you're gonna to have our engineers worrying about contracting and finance and cost and all those things. To which Joe Dyer said, yeah, that's, I want him to worry about those things. Um, and then the, the, the person who headed up logistics wanted all the, 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 the loggies together. And so, so, so Joe let him stay there, but took his people and surrounded them. So, you know, he was pretty clever with co-location to begin with. And then there was a period of time from 1994 to 95 where they started really defining what, what is an integrated product team? What is exactly the structure that we're going to use um, and how are IPTs going to work? And so one of the things they decided, um, well, one thing that happened is every functional group wanted their own IPT. And I see this all the time on programs. You might have the engineering IPT or the test IPT. That's not an IPT. You know, that's a... That's a functional stovepipe. It's just so a department, yes. It is. It's a department. So their their criteria for it was it had to be it had to be something that the soldiers in the field, the sailors, were asking for. 
for example, they asked for radars, they asked for weapon systems, uh, they asked for aircraft, they don't ask for logistics, or they don't ask for tests. And so that was, if it was something that the actual that people out in the fleet asked for, that was a criteria, and it had, and it was a product. Um, and so they, they defined a product breakdown, a work breakdown structure based on the product. Um, and they, so you had, for example, the aircraft, and then you, that was broken into the air vehicle and the propulsion system. And then the aircraft would be broken down into the structure and the wings and the inner wing and so on. Mm -hmm. The engine would be broken down into the engine, electrical power, secondary power, and so on. And so they had, if you, if you think of their work breakdown structure, the organizational structure matched that. Right. Yeah. And it did on the contractor side as well. And so if you had, for example, the uh, somebody who had the inner wing, there was somebody on the government and on the contractor side who were both working on that area. And you would know exactly who to talk to. Um, it's a really, I think that was a really important uh, thing they did, which was to have the organization match their work breakdown structure. And then another thing they did was to define very clear roles and responsibilities, both in the government and on the contractor side, of um, what, what were the responsibilities, what were the authorities. Now, at the very lowest level of that work breakdown structure, the team leads had their own budgets. So they, that, that's what gives you authority when you have money. Ooh, they yes. could spend money. They could make decisions. Uh, they would work with their counterparts. And then there were clear rules about how to escalate decisions up if, if, if they needed a, somebody at a higher level to make it. But that was all very clear. I really see with a lot of programs in trouble and projects in trouble, there's just not clarity always around roles and responsibilities or how the customer relates to the whoever's actually the supplier whoever's doing the work etc but they definitely got that right um so any questions yet francis i know i'm really just no sort of that's great that's that's really good it's really interesting to uh, you know i'm hearing this about about um an air an aircraft uh, project uh, yeah. and and yet there are so many analogs between that and the and the industry that I come out of and I'm sure everyone else listening will have will have the same sorts of thoughts that it's the terminology changes a little bit the the, yeah. the technology obviously changes but fundamentally it's the same problems it is and, and and there were just some good examples of with the integrated product team actually having the people involved in logistics and maintaining the aircraft involved right at the beginning in the design, you would get their input. So you weren't really designing something that was almost impossible to maintain later on. Mm. Um, and so that really, really did work well with those teams. One of the other things um, that I, I just think Joe Dyer and McDonnell Douglas, the contractor did so well with this was, they're, they had a very strong team culture, not only within teams and across different teams, but between the contractor and the government. And so one of the things that when I talked to, interviewed um, Admiral Dyer, he said that he had, he and the the person on the McDonnell Douglas side, they had known each other well. They had both worked on the CD models. They had a trust and an openness. 
and they were going to be very open and collaborative and they both knew that they would they would make sure that that attitude went all the way down the whole team that they there was a cultural change required and that they would insist on it and was, they did was there much, yeah. was there much resistance to that from the from the teams um, I think most of them did well, but there's a great example, um, and this is where leadership is so important, a great example that Joe Dyer had told, which um, he said that there was a new government guy who had, had joined the F-18 team, and they were having their weekly review, um, and this government person stood up and began his sentence by explaining why something wasn't there that was supposed to be. And what he said is the contractor has failed to provide whatever it was. And what Joe said is you couldn't hurt a pin drop because everybody else in that meeting, they were so quiet, they realized they hadn't heard that kind of language for a long time. Yep. And, and what he said is what you just said is not acceptable if the contractor hasn't provided something, it's your problem too. And what are you doing about it? And um, you know, and that that was just an attitude of you. Your job as the customer isn't just to sit back and watch PowerPoint slides or criticize the contractor. It's to be in there helping. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was yeah, very very interesting. And so that, I think there was any resistance. Yeah. yeah. That's a lesson that gets forgotten at all different levels in projects as well isn't it it's not just between the the top end client and the and their main contractor it can be right down through to tier one tier two tier three providers of services everybody could learn something from that yes and it really does start at the top and oh, it's sure. demanded all the way through and that you know something that um one of the things i'll just add um about a year and a half ago We've done all these different scram reviews on on different different programs, and some have been successful, some have had problems, and we just look back of what are the common, what are things that really tend to lead to success, and and what are areas of trouble. One of the really strong, and I'd say the strongest on success is strong leadership, good leadership, not in, it's leadership that wants to hear risk. It's leadership that wants to hear issues, you know, that reacts, doesn't go ballistic with bad news, but reacts the same really to all news and provides help, you know? Yeah. And um, it, it, yeah, and it's, that is, but it is, it starts at the top and goes all the way down. I do remember Joe did say, I think in a few cases when people were not being cooperative with that whole team, collaborative vision and culture they 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 were they were put someplace else yeah yeah yep. yep yeah because yep. He, he did say he couldn't fight two battles you know mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah if the people on the team don't want to behave the way that the team is expected to then they need to find a different team to be part of don't they yeah yeah, yeah. in fact i do remember i think it was especially at the beginning it really was a a, redis a redistribution of power and control i'd say to the teams you know away from some of these strong functional groups and while they did all get on board um i know he said at one point that you know he sort of felt like he needed a car starter and a food taster you know <laughs> <laughs> obviously he's joking yeah. but yes i yeah. think that probably was a little hard at the beginning yeah, yeah. I, I think cultural change always is yes it is um 
But yeah, so so I did talk a little about the the clear roles and responsibilities and authorities, um, and 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 another thing was uh, certainly the team leaders played an important role. And one thing I heard was it's very the person who is that leader at every level. They really have to have good skills of listening and consensus, and they have to be able to make decisions. And they're dealing with an awful lot of information, and not everybody can do that, you know. That's right. Um, yeah, but but they also said that this the F eight the the F eighteen was the premier program, and they get the best people. So the IPTs really did work well there. Um, I mentioned a little bit about um, the whole the whole attitude toward risks and problems and mm. interviewing people. And this was true both with McDonnell Douglas and in, in the Navy who were on the program. They said, you know, I heard this multiple times. We we don't ever get in trouble for raising problems or risks. We only get in trouble for hiding information. And when we raise a, a, an issue or a risk, we also have to say what help we need. Uh, that is such a refreshing attitude toward risk management, oh, and it's not one you is. see all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you really do have to have uh, management that and leadership that doesn't overreact to problems, or people just shut up. Yep. Yep. So that's a that's a people thing for sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, so much of it, isn't it? It just comes keep coming back around to people. We you know, we get all we get all excited about the technology and all excited about this idea and that idea and this process and that process, but it all keeps coming back around to the people. Yeah. And the the best um certainly the best leaders I've seen, I think, are very they're very ethical, um, and very courageous people i'd say because mm. they do what's right yep. um and that sometimes that's that's really hard i mean i think sometimes they're even risking with their own management um but but in this case it was right from the top down so it, it sure did work um another area that they did think about was what they referred to as technical conscience and so in this case what they were the, the thought here was as joe dyer had expressed it um, they were very careful to have a separate path for technical conscience that they didn't want to have a case where somebody in an IPT felt overruled um, by other members that there was some decision being made that they really felt in their heart they couldn't live with it. It wasn't the right thing to do. And so they, all, they always did have their functional area to go back to. Um, so they they did re do some dual reporting in that sense. Mm. So they were very careful to always maintain that separate chain that they could go to if they th thought something wasn't right. Yeah. And I think that's important. Um, and then really the, the last thing um, was uh, it was really a high premium on quantitative information, on measures, and also on communicating those measures. So... One of the things I mentioned with the A12, there was the perception that everything was fine one day and then it was a disaster. Oh, yes. Yeah, so clearly the right information wasn't getting out. And, and one thing that this program did so well was to be very transparent um, with the whole world about what was going on. And I think sometimes it was criticized, and, it, you, and, and, and there's always a danger that people think there's more problems than there are, but 
it's very important, um, and this program did this very well, that if there's problems, and the problems are going to get known and they're going to get out in the press, you really want to hear about the problems from the program itself, you know? Oh, you sure. don't want to hear about it from somebody else. And so they were very good with their communication. Um, they had, and, and in terms of just uh, managing by numbers, they had a number of shared databases. Some of them had technical information like requirements and design. Um, they also had a common um, n a number of measures um, that, that, was, that were updated weekly that both contractors and the government would get access to in real time so that they were looking at the same information. Um, it had financial information. It had earned value. Um, it, 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 I mentioned about how the organization um, was structured both on both sides uh, according to the work breakdown structure, which was a product-based structure. And they had, at the very lowest level, so at that inner wing, if you think of that example, you've got your earned value measures. So you're tra they were tracking both schedule performance and cost. Um, they also had technical performance measures. So every bit of that product down to the lowest level would have a budget for weight, which is oh, very yes. important, would have a budget for power and things like that. And so... Early on during the design, it's estimates that people are working with, but then finally they get to be real numbers as you start actually putting pieces together. Um, and you were able to see with the structure, if, some, if there was a problem with overweight or if, 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 if um, someone was over budget, you would see exactly at the lowest level where the problem was, mm. uh, who was accountable. And then with the weight case, for example, if that inner wing was, was, was overweight, you know, there might be a few ounces that someone else is underweight. You yeah. know, you, you can make those kind of trade-offs in a very visible way. So I think that that whole using, having the work breakdown structure, the organizational structure, the earned value and the technical performance measures all use that same structure, gave such visibility and clarity to where problems were and who, could, who was responsible for it. I just think that in a lot of places don't do that. You know, mm -hmm. I think it was a really good lesson. Mm -hmm. um, they did collect weekly earned value on this program. A lot of contractors do it monthly, um, and, but they used it weekly. And uh, one of the things that Joe Dyer had said was, in this business, it's very, very difficult to find leading indicators of problems. But the closest he's been able to find is weekly earned value because if there is a problem, at least he knows about it right away. Yeah, you know, before, he's not it, before it gets time. too far down the track and uh, and then it becomes a surprise again, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so the final thing that I'll say with this case study, um, and um, I guess we're going almost an hour, it is fun to talk about. It is, though. of course it is, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but there was a good example of one of the things that the, 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 the Incozy PMI book had found is one of the characteristics of well-integrated program management and engineering is that problems are solved very rapidly and effectively. And there was a good example from the F-18 case study where anything this complex has problems. One of their problems was during flight test, um, and they had a part of the engine that basically blew apart a um, a, a, what's called a stator, um, mm -hmm. and it damaged um, it damaged the engine. The pilot was able to get the aircraft back down, 
Um, but they, they immediately looked at um, the other air, test aircraft to see, is this just a one case of some, maybe there was something different that this aircraft was doing in the testing? Um, or do we see, uh, are there cracks or indications of stress in the other aircraft? Well, there were cracks. And so this was obviously a systemic problem. Um, so, they, so GE had made the engine, but what they did, what they, what they'd said was in the past, GE would have gone away and worked the problem and wouldn't have come back to the Navy, um, until they were sure they had solved it. Yep. And then by the time they got the fixes in, it might be a six-month process. Well, this case, it, this it, this actually, this had happened in December. So it was over Christmas. Oh, they got GE in there, the Navy. Uh, they, got, they had people from several different universities come in. Uh, and they worked that problem and um, were actually very quickly to figure out what was, what was going wrong, you know, what had caused it to get a fix in the other eight, the engines. And all of those fixes were in the engines within six weeks. So they went from basically six months to six weeks. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just an example of how that really helped. And, and what they said was, you know, the Navy has a lot of very talented people. And if there's something that goes wrong with an engine, we've probably seen something like that before. Mm. Um, and so it's really to GE's benefit to have us in there. Yeah. So, and presumably as well, if they haven't seen it before, they'd like to know about it for when they see it the next time as well. Um, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 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 So so that's really, um, there's a lot more detail. It's a whole chapter in the book. There is. Um, for anybody who's interested in this. 